All right, guys, you are going to want to bookmark this episode. I promise you this one is packed as they always are, but this one we focused on income for residential lending. Everything that you need to know about employment income, self-employment income, commission income, contract income, other income. Like it was, we talked about so much in such a short amount of time about qualification. You're going to leave here knowing how to do your own mortgage. No, maybe not. But with that being said, I think you're going to love this episode. Before I get into it, I want to take a second to thank a recent reviewer of our show who gave us a five-star review. As we promised, we are going to send out a lovely little Thrive Mug to uh, this person. We've got Nick Johnston. Nick said, uh, if you want to be prepared as a home buyer, seller, or investor, I highly recommend listening to the YBR Remo show. Each episode is well thought out and full of useful information to help you understand the lending side of real estate. Nick, thank you so much for your five-star review. Guys, don't forget, if you are loving the show, please give us a five-star review. Share it out to your friends. Just let us know because we do this for you uh, on our weekends and our evenings to make sure we're giving the best information to the people who actually deserve it. Nick, thank you so much for the review. Guys, you are going to love this episode today. Again, with Dean Lawton, Derek Williamson, myself, Alex McFadden. We'll talk to you soon. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. We're here to spice up your Saturday morning. We're going to talk a lot about income today. Income is the number one... Um, yeah, what one of the one of the four key components of mortgage qualification, and we literally get asked about it on every single phone call, every single application, and every single scenario. So we thought, why not get ahead of ourselves? And if you're getting in the industry, or getting a mortgage, or you're looking for some help understanding just financing in general, I think this uh, this conversation, this topic today, although it won't be entirely overly encompassing of everything to do with income, it's going to touch on a lot of key stuff. So Derek, you masterminded this uh, topic today. What were your thoughts? Going into breaking down different sources of income that we can educate people on yeah i mean mortgage financing and qualification is so driven on income nowadays to get like conventional bank type financing um it's very very driven on income so uh and there's probably 15 at least 15 different streams of income different types of income and it's all looked at a little bit differently from the institutions and there's a lot of kind of myths and misconceptions out there so we just wanted to go through pretty well every type of common uh stream of income explain how it's used uh and then clear up any myths yeah uh asterisk that we'll start off with this episode is there's obviously one-offs uh exceptions and outside the box sorts of situations that we can we'll walk through on a case by case so this can't be entirely overly encompassing but we're going to walk you guys through what is the again like you mentioned the most important and most common types of income and how most conventional institutions will look at it uh, we'll do some later episodes maybe a little bit on some alternate sources and some different types of income yeah um, yeah. So Dean, uh, I mean, lately you're back in the mix in the mud, if you will, you've been working, uh, heavy on a lot of, uh, financing for our, a lot of our clients that keep coming back as we've been following up with them. And, and, um, you know, maybe walk us through some of these myths that you're hearing right now about income and we can talk a bit about that. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of misconceptions when it comes to income. I think one of the big ones is 
is clients that have maybe uh, changed jobs, changed industries, and and think that they have to be employed for two full years. I think that's probably one of the biggest ones that I've been getting recently. Uh, just touching base with past clients that we maybe haven't you know worked with in four or five years, and they're they've literally changed careers, and they're concerned about that. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, it's a good conversation to have. And especially right now, post COVID, we've seen people change their job, change their role, change their industry. I, I, yeah, to your point, yeah, you don't necessarily need to have two years of employment. There's a little asterisk that we'll put in there. And that's if you are guaranteed income or salary or that sort of situation. If you're someone who's say part time, which we'll talk about a bit more later, that could be a little different or you're a casual or contract worker, then this may be a different conversation. Um, Derek, maybe touch a little bit on that self-employed uh, conversation. Yeah. So a huge myth is you have to be self-employed for two years, which I'd say 75% of the time, the answer is typically yes. If you were to ask a bank or credit union or a conventional type lender, um, again, asterisks, you know, there's, there's definitely unique programs. We've helped people that have been self-employed for as little as six months, but it's all about the situation in those, in those scenarios. And, you know, if you've been in the same industry and there's some comfort, uh, in, in your situation for the lender, right? So if there's good credit and, and a reasonable size down payment, there's usually more, um, it's easier to justify a qualification. So everybody thinks that you do have to be self-employed for two years. Not always the case. It's just really case by case. Yeah. We're going to dig more into the self-employed piece as we, as we go through an overview of the income. And I think just before uh, we go too much further again, I'm going to throw that uh, like a big giant asterisk on this entire episode and say, if you're not sure, or if you don't think that you fit within this box, still reach out to us because there are some considerations we just won't have time to touch on. So uh, another key myth and as we rapid fire and get into employment income here we have is that you you cannot be on probation. A lot of people think that just because I'm on probation with my job that I can't get a mortgage and that is just simply not true. Um, being on probation means a lot of different things. Some companies ask for six months, some ask for one year, some ask for one month, three months is pretty common. Let's just say you're coming from a similar line of work where you've been doing this for five years. You moved over a company because you're getting a wage increase or a better opportunity. A lender is highly likely not to look at that as a negative. It's just one of many things they'll consider. Yeah, bang yeah on. well put. Uh, and then there's so the last kind of myth that we want to touch on quickly is casual and auxiliary employment. So um, that's when you're actually an employee of a company, but you're not guaranteed any level of hours. Um, so it's it's very you know, up in the air as to how much you work. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I know I'm casual and I know I can't get a mortgage because of that. So all you really have to do in that scenario is you have to be with that employer typically for a minimum of two years so that we can justify an average of what you're earning. So you absolutely can get a mortgage in most scenarios. It just depends on how much of the income we can actually use. Yeah, so true and a really good point. And, and to make it uh, even more clear, it can be 24 months. It doesn't necessarily have to be like 2018, 2019, 2020, whatever. Uh, 24 months can be helpful, but we commonly see the two-year mark as, as pretty common in the industry place. So if you're still listening in, uh, we're going to get deep into different types of income. And hopefully we touch on your source of income today. If you're uh, a real estate agent listening to this, will be so valuable for you. Again, if you're someone who's just looking, looking to get financing, I think you'll learn a lot about what we're looking for here. Let's let's get into it. We'll spend a couple minutes on each topic and move forward um, and, and run from there. Uh, Dean, why don't you lead us, lead us off with the most common uh, type of income that we see right off the bat? Yeah, employment income would... Uh, and the most common would be full-time. So guaranteed full-time income of at least 40 hours a, a, a week. That's typically uh, what we see. And, and then 
in that case, um, we're not really concerned about a two-year average, if at all. Yeah, and I should throw out there, uh, there's certain situations where it's, a, say, like a nurse or that, and that's very common in, in the health field where it's a 37.5 hours or they have four tens, that sort of situation where it could be a little bit different. But yeah, generally speaking, you have a guaranteed amount of hours for a period of time. And to your point, very easy to verify job letter, pay stub, T4s uh, and so forth. Uh, so if it's if it's new full-time employment, and I've actually helped probably 10, more than 10 of our clients recently with us, people who have been taking on new jobs because they've seen a layoff due to COVID, they've been working for as minimal as two weeks full time and we've been able to use the income. So as long as they can get a letter of employment confirming their guaranteed hours, their wage, uh, probation is obviously case by case, but as soon as we can show that first pay stub to confirm that they are in fact working 40 hours a week or whatever it is, we can use the income right away. I, there's a lot of people who hold back from um, being able to buy a home, they just literally don't go because you're the person at the bank will say, ah, you just started your job, whether it's for probation or whatever. Again, if you're full-time, your, your company is guaranteeing your work. You could be there for 30 days and we can get you, uh, qualified. It's more about the story there. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, I think that letter of employment is really gold in the, in the case of, of verifying this income. And some of those letter of employments come back written in a way that's obviously not going to be ideal the way it's written and so we, we always are very helpful and coach uh, an HR department if it's not like a big you know corporation that does this all the time so just yeah. a tip there yeah let's move on to part-time income uh, part-time income again this is one of those ones so so what's what is part-time income let's really quickly define that a lot of people say well I'm part-time but I can get as many hours as I want I hear that in casual and part-time income and while that might be the case and we actually experience that on our own team where we have a, a team member who who does work quite a lot when we need her to do so um, she's still considered a part-time individual meaning the hours aren't necessarily guaranteed so if your company for example uh, didn't have the hours to provide to you, you wouldn't get them. And we see some people who work 50, 60 hours a week on this part-time income. So from an employer standpoint, the reality is, is they just can't guarantee the hours, but you're flexible, which is beneficial from both sides. And maybe you don't want the guarantee, you have to do that. From a lender standpoint, they look at that the exact way, same way and say, well, you know, you might have been doing this for 12 months and 50 hours a week is your average, but because your employer could roll back at any time, whether it's for COVID or any other reason, they technically don't feel always very comfortable about that. Now there are, is such a thing called part-time guaranteed hours. And we do see that just not very frequently. Anything to add to that, guys, on the part-time piece? Yeah, I'd say there's really two ways that an, a lender would look at part-time employment. It's either by a two-year average, so they're looking at your last two years or 24 months to average out the income that you've earned if you've been with that employer for that long, or it's based on the guaranteed part-time hours. So like if an employer was gonna guarantee you 20 hours a week, that's obviously not full-time, but if they're guaranteeing that, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is they're going to be looking at a pay stub to confirm that you actually are working 20 hours a week, right? And as long as the year-to-date income is in line, then we can use the income. Very good points. Uh, Dean, anything else to add to the part-time or we move on to casual? Yeah, let's move on. All right, take it away. Yeah, so casual is, is going to be similar to part-time. I mean, we're looking for a two-year history in most cases in, in this regard and uh, a year-to-date debt to be on track. So very similar. I think the big thing about casual is it's very rare that you'll find an employer that will guarantee any hours. Yeah. It's almost guaranteed that they're not going to guarantee it. Um, so you pretty well always need a two-year average if you are a casual employee. Yeah, that's a, it's such a big point. And I see this uh, quite frequently. And, and again, similar to the 
similar to the part-time where people get a little bit frustrated because um, again, it's like I'm on a contract. I've done this in the past, but from a lending standpoint or from the lender standpoint, they're looking for assurance and that doesn't provide you insurance because again, you could be let go at any time. And unfortunately it happens. Yeah. One piece with casual part-time that we've seen, there's been a little bit of lightening up with COVID just due to people being laid off. So if you know, if you have been laid off temporarily, you're back to work now and don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say with anything that we're talking about, I would agree with that. Anything we talk about, if you're not sure and you just want to know, like we are always open to a conversation. So let's move forward into a huge topic when it comes to self-employed, which is, uh, sorry, when it comes to income, which is being self-employed. And I think this is the most mysterious thing. Like when I sit down with people, it's, it's, uh, it's, I find it's literally one way or the other way. It's commonly, I can't get qualified because I'm self-employed just flat out, or I make so much money. I should have no problem getting a mortgage. I mean, I spoke to a gentleman yesterday running a trucking business and congrats on him. He's doing phenomenal. He's got, uh, he said somewhere around a million dollars in revenue this year compared to 250 the year before. And well, basically nothing the year before that. But uh, when we talk about what his uh, retained earnings are, how he's claiming them and and what he's doing based on putting in his uh, desires to put 5% down, it, it just isn't going to work for what he's looking for in that circumstance. Now we guided him in the right direction, but let's demystify this. Let's talk about why would that be and, and how does that even work? So sole proprietor, Derek, maybe walk us through what that is and, and how a lender might look at that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's four kind of typical structures. If you're self-employed, you can either be a sole proprietor, you can have an incorporated business, uh, or you can be on contract, uh, or typically commission income. So sole proprietor is you're essentially running a business and there's no corporation involved, right? So it can be any type of business. There's no real restriction on that, but there's no corporation involved. And typically people will involve a corporation for tax benefits. So it usually makes sense to switch from a sole proprietorship into an, uh, an incorporated business when you hit a certain level of income, which again is not our piece. That's something you need to talk to your accountant about. But if you start to earn a certain level of revenue as a sole proprietor, uh, you will start actually pay quite a bit more tax than you would in a corporation. A corporation allows you to essentially defer tax until the money is drawn out, which is probably kind of confusing. But uh, so sole proprietorship from a lender standpoint, so you're self-employed, we need to see a two-year history to get to maximize the qualification and, and, and basically allow you to qualify with traditional A-type lenders. One kind of unique program that's available for pretty well everyone that's in a sole proprietorship is you can actually gross the income up by 15 to 20%. So if your two-year average was say $75,000, we can typically typically add 15% to that amount to allow you to qualify for more. And that's pretty standard across the board. Um, and then, I mean, you know, what we're kind of coming across with is around A-type lending. Whereas there are unique programs for people who are maybe don't claim enough income and we need to look at some of the business income to add that back. That's known as stated income and there are programs available for this. It just depends on the situation. So I want to walk through that just really quickly and just digest what you said there. Um, So Derek kind of covered, you know, at the beginning, why is someone a sole proprietor versus why are they incorporated? Again, talk to your accountant. Um, But going back, I I talked to a lot of people who are business owners that are relatively new in business, uh, in running a business and they 
don't often fully know what they claim and what they don't claim. And, and so this is a good conversation to start having with us today, even for a year in advance or two years in advance as to, you know, how do I claim my income and how much do I claim my income? And we, we actually bring in the accountant quite a bit. We really try to be full service here and walk you through what would it look like if I were to claim a certain amount of income. And we, we do also walk you through different types of lending that are available. I think when we get into the self-employed, I mean, heck, we could do five episodes on this sort of a conversation. We're just primarily talking about buying a property for yourself as a residential home right now. We're not talking about commercial lending or small business lending or anything off the top of our head, just more about what it is. Um, to Derek's point there, there is a potential to do something called stated income, which comes in many different shapes and forms. A lot of banks actually don't have this type of program. And in fact, you can get this program with as little as 10% down as long as you've been doing this for at least two years, right? CMHC even has a program where if you've been less than two years self-employed, if you've shown a history, let's say, for example, as a physiotherapist that transitioned into a contracting position, you can use that self-employed income as long as you filed for at least one year. So let's talk about incorporated income. Uh, Dean, maybe walk us through just a little bit of a brief overview as to what you would typically see there and what that might look like. Yeah. So incorporated income is obviously the goal for most sole proprietors to get incorporated. It's going to save you a ton of money in taxes, which we won't touch on. But when you become incorporated, there's a lot of, I, I guess you could say, myths around being incorporated as well. A lot of people think when they go incorporated, now they have to reset that two year average, which isn't the case. Um, but one of the things that we, we typically see is, again, a two year average is usually used on uh, in the most conservative case on what you're what you actually net. So what you pay taxes on um, a lot of a lot of incorporated clients will actually draw income as a t4 as well so they'll pay themselves as an employee plus take a dividend from the company so we're looking at uh in, in that case, we're going to look at the T4 income and we're also going to then look at a two-year average on the dividend income. So it when you're incorporated, you have a lot of options on how you draw your income. And that's where an accountant, a really good accountant, will give you great advice. And we see it all the time. Like we see clients regularly that have fantastic accountants and save them tons of money on taxes with strategies like this. Um, so how we utilize your income is going to be very much uh, a hand in hand process with us and their accountant. Yeah, to your point, like a lot of accountants will save you money there, but they'll kill your financing. So uh, definitely a conversation to have with us. If you're looking for a good accountant, definitely uh, have a chat with us. We could probably put you in touch with a couple uh, different ones there, but it's it's certainly a little bit of give and take there, right? One thing um, I'll note, like being incorporated, being self-employed and, and structuring your income correctly could save you thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars in taxes with a good accountant. So, you know, going into some of these different lending products that could cost a little bit more than your typical, you know, best current five-year fixed interest rate could be just peanuts when it comes to how much money you're saving yeah. in taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the whole picture, right? Let's talk about contract uh, income a little bit here and, and what that looks like. So, so to be contracted, uh, basically similar in a way to casual or auxiliary, um, and you could be a sole proprietor or non-sole proprietor, but in this circumstance, we're talking usually about a contractor. So, uh, common situations, I think I hit it off a physiotherapist or an RMT or something like that. You'd be contracted again, we're, if we're talking about conventional financing, we usually need a two year history. Um, again, assuming you're in the same industry, which uh, we've we've got noted here, you could see some exceptions to that. Uh, what we find with someone like this is they actually don't claim as much in write-offs. Um, they'll have way lower expenses, and we're using the accurate numbers on those tax filings. So I think the biggest thing really here is about the fact that if you're coming, again, I'll just use that example of that 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 health professional that's coming from you know a kines or a physio that was doing this in a, in a salaried position 
profession and they decide to make the switch over because of you know income reasons uh you know people in this uh stage do need to talk to us because we do have options before the two years is up if you file it correctly that's kind of the key there anything else to add to that i think one thing to keep in mind is that if you're on a contract there's typically an end date. So that is something that we usually have to discuss, justify. Sometimes it it takes a little bit further communication to understand what that looks like. Because if your contract's ending in two months, a lot of employers or lenders, I should say, could have a concern, right? What happens after two months? Do you lose your stream of revenue? Um, So just kind of understanding the situation and explaining the story is really important there as well. Just while we're talking about self-employed, regarding documentation, it's a little bit different than what we would request for an employee. So for an employee, we're looking at a job letter pay stub and t4s that covers pretty well everything and then the lender actually contacts your employer to confirm that everything written on that letter is in fact the case whereas when you're self-employed we're looking at just your last two years tax returns if you're a sole proprietor or contractor what have you if you're incorporated we actually look at your personal tax returns and there's tax returns for the corporation that are separate so there's a much bigger picture to kind of paint for the lender when you have a corporation involved you know what's uh, just on this note is like the number one group of people that we see that are referred to us after they've been declined somewhere else is Mm self-employed flat out flat out and um i think commonly i'm I, I don't know the stats on this but a big reason for that is they're not submitting all the documentation up front and that's i mean we talk about that with employees as well and it's always really important but it's self-employed the same thing so oh go ahead yeah i think that's definitely a part of it is they're not submitting the documentation but at the same time all lenders have different yeah. appet- appetites for what they're willing to accept and i mean some lenders allow us to actually look at corporate income most don't some lenders allow us to gross up income. Some don't, right? I think a lot of a lot of self-employed clients will go to their bank first because that's where their business bank accounts are. That's where everything is. They walk in, and that particular bank is not favorable for self-employed income. And then they walk out, and their pride is hurt, and they they just think they're they're defeated, right? They're successful people have a great business, but then they just got declined for a pr- new primary residence. So I think a lot of people just stop there because of pride and that don't realize that there's lots of other options available. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, like a lot of your own banks do have programs. It may just be the person there doesn't know how to use it. Let's move forward, guys. So this is a one that's commonly considered self-employed, but it's kind of unique in the way that it's sourced. And we're, we're uh, actually uh, experienced with this because we're also considered commissioned uh, in, in our industry uh, would be uh, commission. Uh, income. Now, a common, probably the most common that we see in our line of work would be like a real estate agent who actually is paid a commission uh, as opposed to a fee per se. So uh, again, a commission is very similar to a contract in the sense that there's a two-year history for conventional lending purposes. For unconventional lending purposes, no problem. We can look at shorter time frames, And this this goes for every self-employed option is we can we can deal with as little as three or six months depending on how much your, your income is and, and what type it is. But if we're just talking about typical residential bank lending they're usually again looking for that two-year history um uh, we also have it noted here obviously it's, it's not tax at the source so you still have to pay tax afterwards like a salt, uh, self-employed individual uh, I, I don't really have a ton to add to commission otherwise other than than just I, a, yeah i think the only thing that i would add there is like commission is a it's a type of revenue what you do with that commission is you can obviously structure it differently you can 
You can, it can actually show up as commission income on your tax returns. You can run it through a corporation, right? It can be claimed as business income. So that's where your accountant would come into play. But we also see a lot of people who are maybe an employee, maybe a sales rep, right? And they might have a, a base salary and then they earn commissions on top of that. So in that situation, we're usually using the base salary plus a two-year average of the commissions that you earn. That's one thing to keep in mind as well as like Alex brought up that commission income and all self-employed income is not taxed at the source, right? So when, if you're a realtor and you work for Sutton West Coast, they're not typically taking the tax off for you. So you have to pay it at the end of the year. And what I hear come up a lot is people are like, well, you know, I made $200,000 last year. How do I not qualify for this mortgage? It's because you claimed 75,000, right? Like you only paid tax on $75,000 because your write-offs were 125. So typically you're looking at the after-tax net income dollars for conventional lending. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's a great breakdown. Great breakdown, guys. If you're listening to this, you're getting gold nuggets left, right, and center. So keep coming, keep it coming. We got two more kind of big sources of income or or kinds of income for you to listen to and talk about. Let's start off with support income. Uh, most common types of support income are child support and spousal support. And uh, it's actually shocking to me how many people I talk to that are going through a divorce or separation or have recently gone through one that don't buy a property because they don't think their income from the other partner or child or alimony is uh, possibly used. Um, actually, exactly the opposite if we have a separation agreement filed and you can show a history of receiving that income again we have to show that history and deposits you can use that no problem um one thing to make a note of when it comes to child support is obviously based on your the age of the child there may be a end date so we have to be conscious on the length of the time um for example if you only have four years remaining most lenders won't let you take a five-year term maybe a two-year term uh, could be acceptable with some lenders but we have to be conscious of that that being said that's that's pretty much it they allow you to use the full income amount from child support is there anything i missed on that no, the only other thing that I would touch on, and it's very case by case, but what I have seen some lenders is not being overly reliant. If you just have spousal or child support, they don't like to rely on that completely. And the reason for that is it's not like employment income, right? Like if your ex-spouse decides to stop paying you, unfortunately your income just stops, right? Which would be a terrible situation, but that's the fear from a lender's eyes. So what they typically like to see is some other level of income, whether it's part-time income or rental income or somebody else on the application. It is sometimes difficult to get an approval if it's 100% support payments, but again, it's always case by case. Yeah. Very good point. Spousal support is much the same. In fact, I'll, I'll kind of just push that right into the other. The only difference with the spousal support I'd suggest is just the source of which it's coming from. It's uh, coming, obviously, it's alimony paid by the other party. Um, really not a whole lot to add to that. Again, we just look at the separation agreement, make sure that it's still usable, make sure they're actually paying you the money. Uh, to Derek's point, they want to make sure that you're not 100% relying on that income. Anything else to add to that? If you're the one paying it, so you're <laughs> you're paying your wife, just know that that's now a liability and we it's definitely something we look at. So I, I don't want to dive too deep into that, but it's something to consider if you're making those. Payments. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more on the inverse liabilities on another episode. But yeah, that's right. Uh, definitely something to have a chat with us about. Uh, sometimes it is better to take that buyout if you're uh, the person that will be paying it, especially as it comes to income qualification, which we recommend. Speaking of which, we just recently helped a client uh, reshape his separation agreement. Again, just advising based on what he could qualify for by going the option of the buyout as opposed to the alimony, which helped him get into a home versus not being able to get into a home so that was huge huge uh other income man we could probably go down other income for about an hour so we're going to just stick to the 
kind of key most common ones we see. We'll just add in a couple from here and there. Let's start off with uh, pension income. Yeah, seeing this a lot right now with the baby boomers rolling into the, the you know the twilight years, I guess you could say. Um, most pensions are 100% usable. You can pretty much qualify with pretty much 100% of them. So uh, again, what we're looking for here is usually when you're receiving a pension, you're going to have, you know, a T1 general package that your accountant would have um, put together for you, which would include two T4As, which again, are government documents that are going to show exactly what you're receiving. And then bank statements just to confirm you're actually still receiving those uh, pension deposits. And other than that, it's like I said, it's, it's going to help you and you can use 100% of it. Yeah, the one thing to keep in mind with pension is like, uh, OAS, CPP, those are ongoing. Like those typically don't end. Some pensions do end. So again, just like the support payments, if there's an end date on your pension and it's coming up soon, we might not be able to use the income. Uh, and then this isn't technically pension, but like RRSP, right? If people buy RRSPs throughout their life and they have a built up a lump sum of money that they're going to withdraw from that, maybe you pull out $30,000 a year from your chunk of RRSPs, we can use that income as well. The one thing, again, we have to keep in mind is the amount that you have held in the RRSP account has to be enough to support that level of income throughout the life of the mortgage, right? So like if your RRSP account is pretty well dry, we're probably not gonna be able to use that income anymore. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. If you're drawing 5K a month and there's uh, 100K left, it's not gonna last very long. Yeah, well, let's bleed that really quickly into one that we didn't have highlighted here, but I think it's just right off that, which is investment income in general. There's so many different types of investment income. And to be honest with you, Dean, to your point about baby boomers uh, being able to now see these options, I think a lot of baby boomers didn't think these were even possibilities. And we're starting, maybe it's just us because we talk to people a lot and we're we're showing them the ways to do that but you know there's other types of investment incomes i've seen uh that like quite literally i saw one this week that i've never ever ever seen before which was almost like a buyout from a company that they owned in the past um we'll get too deep in it to into it but they didn't think they could use this for income it's seventy five thousand dollars a year uh, year and it's guaranteed for at least the next 15 years we just have to be able to prove how much money's in that account and that they're going to continue to get that money same thing goes on for you know riffs income and any other source of investment income that we can prove again it's all about viability disability disability, disability. income um, a lot of people again common misconception people think they won't qualify because they're just on disability I hear it all the time if you're on long-term disability that is guaranteed income right so again we have to be conscious if there's an end date but typically long-term disability doesn't have an end date um, so if you're on long-term we just have to request a letter from the provider whoever the disability or the the coverage company that you're with we provide bank statements to confirm that the deposits are actually coming to you and we can use that income now on the other hand short-term disability is obviously not guaranteed and because it's short-term we know that there's an end date so that is typically not usable however i just had a situation where a client was on short-term disability and long-term disability was approved it just hadn't kicked in yet and the lender was comfortable using the long-term disability amount because that was coming up in six months I think the one thing that I see a lot too is when people are on short-term disability, if they're an employee, they might have an upcoming return to work. And usually it's gradual depending on the situation. So if that employer, let's say you were gonna start work on Tuesday gradually, if your employer is willing to guarantee you a certain level of hours, even if it's 10 hours a week, we can start by using that. I get uh, a lot of people who are on maternity leave who say like, uh, I'm on EI, does that count? So EI is typically not usable in an application. If you're on mat leave, which is another piece, we can use the mat leave income if you are returning to work 
typically within 12 months, sometimes up to 18 months away. Um, but EI is typically not usable. Some situations where I've seen it used is say an apprentice. So someone that's going through four years of consecutive schooling to, to, for their apprenticeship. Um, their two-year average is going to be lower than typical because they'll take six or eight weeks off every year. Um, I've actually had a lender look at the EI income from those two years to help support their income level. Again, very case by case, but for the most part, EI is not usable. Yeah, well, just one thing to add on with, I've seen WCB uh, basically taking care of short-term disability arrangements and there is an end date, but there's a clear wording that they're going to retrain that person into another field at a similar rate of pay. So they don't know what they're going to be. They don't know what their new job is going to be. But at some point, the WCB is ensuring them to get back to work in a similar rate of pay. And I've seen that help uh, push clients across the finish line. Thank you. CCB and CTC. So we're talking about maternity leave income and, and coming back to work. As long as it's guaranteed, you, 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 we can use that. With CCB income, uh, that's uh, basically the tax credit that you get for having kids, more or less. So uh, Dean, I don't know if you're experienced with child uh, care benefit income, but- uh, well, so I have three kids. So. There you go, there you go. <laughs> so, so many families uh, don't know that you can actually use this um, in income to qualify you again we made a note here again they've, they've got to be uh we can we have to prove that you've got that for at least another five years with most institutions so we'll have to look at what the age of your children are but with that being said that is a a monster source of income which is so often forgotten because there's quite a few lenders still to this day especially the big banks who don't allow this under different programs uh, some programs do, but not others. It gets lost in the weeds a lot of time when, uh, like, when you fill out a mortgage application and you mention you have kids, we're asking you how old your kids are for a very direct reason. And this is why. This can help. It makes a big impact. It's gotten a lot of clients into that you know, gone, like literally went from a townhouse to a single family home with a basement suite because of just this amount of income yeah. in addition to their, their job. Right. So I just hear a lot of people say it's only 500 bucks a month. Like, why would I include that? Right. 500 bucks a month is a huge help in a mortgage application. Yeah. One thing to make a note on that is, uh, that can generally not factor any more than 30% of your income. So on the other side of the equation, I've seen people who don't work that only want to use childcare benefit that wouldn't fly for a conventional institution because they want to see that you have another source of income there. So maybe bring in a co-applicant or if your partner works, something of that nature, it's, it's helpful. With alternate lenders, different conversation, but we're not talking about that today. So um, rental income. So we, I think we, we've done or we've definitely talked about doing a full episode on rental income. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a deep one. I think at the very least, we'll keep it short. And the fact that a lot of lenders are looking to see that you're actually claiming this income on your taxes. So there's a lot of times where clients don't claim rental income or they're, you know, we'll get into a couple off cases when you're buying, but um, yeah, it's very important that you are claiming your income on your, on your uh, claim, taxes. the rental income. Yeah. It's really not that bad. If it's two grand a month, that's $24,000 a year, but you have to keep in mind you have expenses, right? Interest from mortgages, maintenance, everything. So you're not going to end up paying a ton of tax on that income and it's going to change everything when it comes time for your next mortgage application. Um, and then just the last thing on rental income for me anyways, is that every single lender is different. Every single lender is going to utilize rental income in a different way, right? So you might apply with a TD bank uh, and hit a certain level of qualification. Whereas if, if you go over to a credit union, you're going to see actually a, an increased qualification because of how they look at that. Yeah. On the rental income component to what Dean and Derek both said, claim the rental income. It does provide you with more options. It's not the only option, but it will definitely help in the long run. Uh, one other note on that, this is 
so, 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 so important. And this is why you talk to a professional like us who does this all day long and works with clients who own investment properties to restructure your loans. I just helped a client recently close on uh, four refinances of their investment properties to save them uh, in the long run, $10,000 uh, of, uh, of money uh, over a five-year span without, the, without any out-of-pocket expense because we restructured the loan. We changed where the interest was coming from their primary to their rental properties. Now they're writing off more of their expenses and we're just basically making this plan come together a little more, I guess, clearly. So, I mean, again, rental income is a huge one uh, that we definitely don't want to forget about. And I think uh, to this point, did we miss any other key pieces of income? Because I think you rattled off the most important ones. Today. I miss Matt leave, but we you caught we, that. We got it. We got it. All right. All right. <laughs> Guys, income is changing on a, on a daily basis. This industry, well, from the outside looking in, might look like it stays pretty much the same, but it's actually constantly evolving. We get new guidelines sent to our email every single day. And we're nerds here on a Saturday morning or whatever day it is, <laughs> wearing suits, filming a podcast just to help you out. So uh, if you want to get the answers, you know who to talk to. Uh, I got Derek Williamson, Dean Lawton, myself, Alex McFadden uh, of Thrive Mortgage Co. And our team is always here to take care of you. Aside from that, don't forget, we're giving away a mug. Leave that review um, and we're going to send one to your door. Speaking of which, we actually have one to give away and I'm excited to announce this one. I, <laughs> I looked it up before the up before we came in here today and uh, we have a gentleman named Nick Johnson uh, who left us a review on iTunes. So uh, Nick, thank you so much for the positive uh, review um, on iTunes and uh, we really appreciate the, uh, the five star. Thanks for sharing our information out to your clients and your friends. And uh, if there's anybody else out there who we can help, give us a call. Aside from that, folks, have a great day. We're signing off.